0: What happens when we die? Anybody ever ask you this question? Uh, it is not a new question. It's a question that many people have asked themselves. People from different worldviews and cultures have uh, answered. Oscar helpfully pointed out some different views on how to answer that question. I'll provide one other example. A popular atheist by the name of Bertrand Russell. When asked the question, replied, I believe that when I die, I shall rot, and nothing of my ego shall remain. It's an honest answer, clear in its statement, and I appreciate that, a sneaky way to undermine those who believe different than him. But how would you answer that question if someone asked you, what happens when we die? Uh, if you're a member of FBC, would you be able to articulate what you think the Bible teaches clearly on this matter? Uh, well, whether the answer is yes or no, I hope that the passage we think through today uh, helps you with that question. This morning we're going to study a passage in which Jesus is confronted by those who hold a different conviction than him on this very point. Uh, just like in the past when Jesus faced his opposition, he masterfully Uh, turns the argument against them with some confidence. Jesus not only believed in and preached about what happens after death, but the reason he gives to his opponents, I think will be an encouragement for us this morning. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark 12, verse 18. We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27. Mark 12, verses 18 through 27. And you can find this passage on page 848 if you're using one of the Bibles underneath the chairs, page 848. Uh, and if you are visiting here today and you don't have a Bible that you can read on your own at home, uh, please feel free to just take one of the ones underneath the chairs as our gift to you. We would love for you to have your own copy of God's Word. Uh, we believe that God has spoken to us by His Word, that it is without error in everything that it and therefore authoritative for us. So we think that there is nothing better than you reading for yourself the very Word of God. Uh, By way of context, uh, remember that we're in the final week of Jesus' life, the final week. He's journeying to Jerusalem, arriving during the time of Passover. He's been making daily trips to the temple to teach, which is the religious center of of the city, the capital city for the Jews, Uh, all the while challenging the religious authorities who have in turn confronted him wave after wave. So back in 11.27, Jesus has his authority challenged by his opposers, by the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes, uh, the very groups that we learn from chapter 8.31 would eventually kill him. And then in chapter 12, Jesus is confronted again, and he delivers a prophecy against them the Pharisees and the Herodians then trying to trap Jesus about questions of submission to the government. That's just the paragraph above ours. So if opposition has come against Jesus concerning his authority, submission to government, today's opposition is on the question of doctrine. It's a theological attempt to trap Jesus. Let's read our text together now. Mark 12, verses 18 through 27. And the Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Jacob, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. If you are a note taker and you want me to just cut to the chase, figure out what kind of main thing going on in this passage, I'll summarize it this way. Christians can be confident in life after death because God is God of the living and not God of the dead. Christians can be confident in life after death because God is God of the living and not God of the dead. That's the primary argument at hand, and therefore it's the biggest theological point that Jesus demonstrates in his response. But I think that there's much that we can learn specifically from the errors of the Sadducees. So I'm going to give you three points that I think help us avoid error. The first is know the scriptures. The second is believe in the power of God. The third is understand essential doctrine. And then after that, I'm going to try to summarize uh, a doctrine of the resurrection uh, that I think will be helpful for you. So first, to avoid error, we must know the scriptures. Uh, Mark helps us understand why Jesus is asked a doctrinal question in verse 18. And when he introduces the Sadducees, he says that they are those who say that there is no resurrection. So uh, the Sanhedrin, this is a quick summary of who the Sadducees are. Sanhedrin is the authoritative body of the Jewish people. It's made up of uh, different strands of religious leaders. Uh, We've known already of the Pharisees, uh, of the chief priests, the scribes. Well, the Sadducees were another group. You can think of them almost kind of like a a Jewish denomination. Uh, They are a minority. They're not mentioned very often in the Bible. They're only mentioned this one time in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, But they are here opposing Jesus As religious authorities of the day. And believe it or not, Jesus in this passage agrees with the Pharisees in a lot of the distinctions between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So a few other things about the Sadducees you should know. They don't believe in angels. Uh, They have uh, a high view of free will, Uh, so not a high view of the sovereignty of God. They don't hold all of the Old Testament as authoritative, like the Pharisees recognize the prophets and the writings. They only recognize the Book of Moses. And by that, they're referring to the first five books, or sometimes called the Pentateuch, uh, or sometimes called the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's what they see as authoritative. There's another time that Sadducees show up in the Bible, by the way, and it's a helpful uh, demonstration of what they believe is Acts 23. The Apostle Paul has been arrested in Acts 23, and he is taken before the Jerusalem council. Who knows, maybe he's before some of these very same Sadducees. And uh, this is what the author of Acts records. It says, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he has said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, The tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him to the barracks. Now you get an idea of the kind of sharp disagreement between the Sadducees and the Pharisees over these matters. Well, they come to Jesus, just like others have in the past, to try to trap him or at least disprove his teaching about the resurrection uh, in a way that seems to mock the position and one of the reasons we know that is because they ask him a hypothetical question about it. Uh, even they themselves don't believe in the resurrection. But with their question, uh, they're trying to show how silly the idea of a resurrection would be. So they present a situation in which the resurrection would not be good, based on Jewish literature. Uh, the Sadducees, by the way, these are still the elite as far as they're educated. Uh, They probably had tons of debates with Pharisees over these exact issues. And so I think the question they asked was probably one that they thought was going to trump Jesus. Probably a question that many Pharisees could not answer. And the question they asked is about what's called a Leveret Marriage Law. And you can read this law for yourself. It's in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. I think the Sadducees summarize it well enough here with their question. But the law stated that If a husband died before producing an heir, then the brother of the dead husband was to marry the widow to provide and raise up an heir for the dead brother. Now, the key to understanding this law is to realize that Israel was given land as part of the promise and inheritance from God, and that land was assigned to different families meaning this law would help ensure the land was not taken or sold to foreign nations but remained in the family. It was a way of protecting families who rightfully owned it. But what does this law have to do with the resurrection? Well, the Sadducees point to this law and say, see, you have a practical problem with heaven. And that practical problem in the resurrection is who is married to who. If she has many husbands throughout her life, and none of them have kids, so none of them have kind of a larger right to being married to her, then when all eight of them are raised, what's going to happen? Each one of these marriages is legitimate, is it not? Let me just pause for a brief moment and just point something out. This isn't, this isn't a primary thing teach, uh, that the text is teaching, but we, we can learn from it. Notice that monogamous marriage is assumed. If they had no problem with polygamy, then this objection wouldn't exist. They would just say, well, they could all be married. Uh, And I say that because some people have said that the Bible condones polygamy because there are examples of it in Scripture. Uh, But I just want to say that while there are examples, it's never endorsed. It's always painted in a negative light, which is essentially the Bible's way of saying, this is what happens when you engage in this kind of relationship. It doesn't go good. It's a bad idea. That in the Bible is very clear from the very beginning, from from the creation of marriage itself, that is between one man and one woman by God's design. This is an example of the religious leaders or religious teachers in Jesus' day who uphold the Jewish scriptures that they assume polygamy goes against God's design and plan for marriage. Well, the question is hypothetical. And there's nothing special about the number seven in this text, in case you were wondering. Uh, seven is often a symbolic number. It's simply just the favorite number in Jewish literature. And so it's used in examples like this. sometimes communicates wholeness or completeness. Uh, but I think in this case, the Sadducees, they're just making a point. They're just continuing the logic to drive their point home. But they do use scripture to argue their point. They use law from the Old Testament. And how does Jesus respond to this challenge? Well, first he says in verse 24, Isn't this the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. And in order to demonstrate that they are wrong, he turns to Scripture as well. Uh, And that's an important point for us. Uh, There are times where people use Scripture improperly or they come up with, a wrong interpretation, which is why we need to use scripture to interpret scripture. And because we believe in inspiration, we know that every author was inspired by the spirit, the divine author, when writing. And therefore, the Spirit's not going to contradict himself in his writing, even though you have different writers from all throughout history in different places. So when there appears to be a contradiction, it's likely either that the interpretation was wrong in the first place. Or maybe too much was assumed. Let scripture affirm the right interpretations and correct the wrong ones. This is one of the reasons why it's so important that we know our Bibles well. Because any form of heresy or hypocrisy, which are equally deadly, comes from either a lack of biblical knowledge or an improper hermeneutic, improper form of interpretation, understanding what it means. If we are in error, it's likely because we assume more than we know, and we have not done our due diligence to search the scriptures for answers. Notice that Jesus, when he says clearly, the reason they're wrong, is because they don't know the scriptures. It's not because they don't know enough philosophy. It's not because they don't have enough experience. They're not educated in uh, the most modern science were accomplished in the political realm. is that they don't know the Scriptures. Friends, the Scriptures are the most important things for us to know. And knowledge of the Scriptures doesn't just happen automatically. Uh, we need to work at it. We need to be diligent to read the Bible for ourselves, to be Bereans that test what we hear by the word of God. Knowing the Scriptures is not something only for the super-godly Christians. It's not something for only the pastors who preach uh, or only the theologians or the biblical scholars. Scripture should be known by all who profess faith. Mm -hmm. So every ordinary Christian should labor to read Mm -hmm. and understand God's Word. Well, that's the first way we can avoid error. You know, I think sometimes we, we treat scripture intake, uh, like the way we drink water. We sometimes just drink a cup every now and then when we're thirsty, perhaps that cup that you drink is only once a week on Sunday mornings. Uh, But what we want scripture intake to look like more realistically in our life, rather than an individual cup that we drink occasionally, we want it to be like a slow drip of an IV directly into our life that is continually sustaining us. So let me just encourage you to, to use that image as a way to recognize that scripture brings life, Mm -hmm. that man lives not only by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. Mm -hmm. The second error, or thing we can do to avoid error, is believe in the power of God to keep his promises. Believe in the power of God to complete or keep his promises. This is the reason Jesus brings up the burning bush uh, and Moses. Look, at, look again at verse 26 and 27. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now if someone were to ask you where in the Old Testament you would go to show the resurrection, My guess is you probably wouldn't have thought of Exodus 3, verse 6. Uh, I probably wouldn't have. There are other places, more explicit references. I think of Job 19, 25 through 27. Job was described as a righteous man in the beginning of the book. Uh, Everything is taken from him. His family dies. His health suffers. Satan takes away his property. In Job 3, two chapters later, he's lamenting his own birth. But by chapter 19, he says, I know my Redeemer lives. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet my flesh, I shall see God. Psalm 16, an amazing psalm. David says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, that is the realm of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. Or maybe you would go to Exodus 37, where, or sorry, not Exodus, Ezekiel 37, where he's prophesying over a valley of dry bones. As he prophesies, the bones come together and flesh covers them. But why does Jesus go to Exodus 3? You know, he also could have just said, you have questions about the resurrection. Just wait till next week. Right? He's already said three times, chapter 8, 9, and 10, that he's going to die and rise again. So he could just say, yeah, I get your objection. Just wait and see what I'm going to do in a few days. But he doesn't even do that. No, instead he goes to a scripture that they see as authoritative. It's significant that Jesus mentioned this passage because Exodus 3.6 is one of the foundational moments in the history of of Israel in which God reveals himself. It's a passage where we hear the very name of God, Yahweh, I Am. It's a moment God reveals himself to Moses to instruct him to rescue the people out of Egypt. The rest of the entire Old Testament looks back to that moment. It's a huge moment. But Jesus is not just showing that resurrection can happen in his life. He shows them that it's foolish to think our existence ends when we die, which is the opposite of a belief in a resurrection. And he does so based on the promise that God makes to the patriarchs. Look again at 26. Notice the words that, that are quoted. God does not say, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. No, instead he says, I am the God of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If he did say I was, for example, the implication would be that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were no longer living, but only exist in the past, resting in their graves. But since God identified himself as the current God of the patriarchs, it's clear that God sees his relationship with his people as an eternal one and not a temporal one. Another way to say it is this. We know that God kept his promises to the patriarchs, but he did not fulfill those promises within their lifetime. Instead, he worked over long periods of time in history and fulfilled the promises that he made centuries earlier. But if the patriarchs simply ceased to exist when they died, then what would be the point of fulfilling the promise? it wouldn't be considered a promise fulfilled if the recipient of the promise died before it was fulfilled. So when God enters a relationship with his creatures, it's not simply for the brief time that we are here on earth, this vapor of our lives, but for all eternity. He is still currently the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, One of my favorite commentators on Mark is a man by the name of James Edwards, and he summarized it marvelously. He said this, if Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead, as the Sadducees believe, then God's promise to them was limited to the duration of their earthly lives, which renders his promise finite and unfulfilled. God's word, however, cannot be veiled. It is not an epitaph of human limitations, but a promise of divine potential. God would not pledge himself to the dead unless the dead were raised to life. Jesus' argument for the reality of resurrection is based on the assumption That the call of God establishes a relationship with God. And once a relationship with God is established, it bears the promise of God and cannot be ended even by death. The relationship is a result of the promise and power of God that conquers the last enemy, death itself. Friends, we worship a God who gives and sustains life. Death is an enemy, a result of the fall, and none can escape it. But it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Therefore the righteous shall live by faith. We live in faith knowing God's promises will come true even if we don't see them come true here on earth, on this earth. We will live to see it on the new earth. Knowing the promises of God pairs well with knowing the scriptures. I think those two are are connected really. Mm So do you know the scriptures well enough to know the promises? And not only do you know them, but do you believe in them? I think there are lots of people who say, I know that heaven is going to be better than earth, but I really want to get this kind of promotion first. Or I really want to get married first before Jesus comes back. I really want to have a successful career Part of me would be slightly nervous if Jesus came back today because there's so much of life I've not experienced yet. Brothers and sisters, we must believe in the promises of God that when we go to heaven, our joy will be complete. So first step to avoiding theological error is to know the scriptures. Second is to believe in the power of God to fulfill his promises. Third is to understand essential doctrines and resurrection being one of them. Uh, We must understand essential. So there's a strange kind of fake humility that's common today, uh, especially among progressive Christianity, Uh, if you're familiar with uh, liberal theologians or anything like that. This kind of fake humility is quick to admit that no one knows the answer to all of life's questions, and no one can. Therefore, to claim to know something definitively is arrogant and prideful. But it's only arrogant and prideful if God didn't explicitly reveal it to us in the person of Jesus and in the Word of God. So just notice the confidence with which Jesus speaks in verse 24 and 27. He tells them, you're wrong. And in 27, you're quite wrong. Jesus has a category for objective truth. Now I'm aware that Jesus has unique authority To proclaim truth and he's incredibly wise to do it in a way that just bamboozles his opponents again and again. I'm not saying that we should go out of our way to make conflict with people uh, or humiliate their views or claim to know all things or anything like that. But I am telling you that there are certain non-negotiables when it comes to Christianity and the resurrection is one of them. Uh, There are essential doctrines that God has revealed to us, perhaps not fully but truly Therefore, it would be foolish for us to shy away from the things that God has made clear in his word. Mm-hmm. So our job, which builds off those point one and point two, to understand the, is, is to understand the essentials of Christian doctrine. For Jesus, there's just no way around it. They're wrong. Belief in the resurrection is essential because it's based on the very eternal nature and promises of God the Father. But friends, don't you agree that if there are essentials or non-negotiables about understanding the Christian faith, don't you agree that it's crucial for us to know what those are? (laughs) We need to take a special kind of watch over our souls and our witness to others to ensure we understand these doctrines of the faith to know what scripture teaches them, how to explain them to someone else. With that in mind, let me just give you a summary of what Christians have believed the scripture teaches about the resurrection. But here's a helpful summary by uh, 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 since-deceased pastor, R.C. Sproul. He said The doctrine of the resurrection states that the souls of men live on after death, and that when God brings history to a close, he will raise the bodies of all human beings from the grave and reunite them to their souls, with the righteous being welcomed into eternal life, with God and the unrighteous being sent away into eternal torment. All humanity will be raised from the dead. All of our earthly bodies under the curse of the fall are decaying, but God will raise us and transform our bodies to those that are fit for eternity, that will not decay. Just like the angels, that's one of the reasons Jesus says we will be like angels. He's not saying that we're going to have wings, Uh, We're going to be, you know, full of fire or anything like that, uh, at least from what we know. Uh, He's saying that we will live through eternity, just like the angels do. Since the Sadducees didn't believe in angels, this is like Jesus' way of telling them, you're not only wrong about the resurrection, you don't know the scriptures, you doubt the power of God, and by the way, angels are real too. So here's three important things that I want to draw from the doctrine of resurrection. They're not explicit to our text, but I think they'll helpfully round out this doctrine for you to understand. First, it's the power of God alone that raises us up. That's one of the reasons Jesus says God is not God of the dead, but of the living. So we know all people die. That's not a surprise to us. We've experienced that. It's been true of all humanity ever since the fall. But the God who gave us life in the first place is able to give us life again. The God who in judgment placed humanity under a curse because of Adam and Eve's rebellion is able to reverse that curse because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Uh, He is able to conquer death because Christ, after dying on the cross, rose from the grave three days later, proclaiming victory over death. A lack of belief in the resurrection, therefore, is a denial of who God is and his power. Jesus says he is God of the living. Jesus says we will be like the angels in heaven with him, praising him through all eternity. Only the power of God can accomplish that. God so powerful that nothing can get in the way of his sovereign plan. And not even death. So resurrection is not just a New Testament idea though it is expanded on uh, and talked about more because of Jesus, but there are other places in the Bible that you can go to, in the Old Testament as well, where you see a belief in resurrection. Let me just name one for you, Genesis 22. It's a deeply misunderstood chapter of the Bible at times, but it's one of my favorites in the entire Bible. Uh, Abraham, God instructs Abraham to sacrifice his son is his only son at that time, to the Lord. And it was only by a miracle of the Lord that they were given this child Isaac in the first place because Sarah's womb was barren. They were old in their age. Remember, this happens after God promises uh, to raise up a nation, descendants from Abraham, to bless all of the nations (laughs) of the world. Then he gives them the son miraculously and then commands him to carry out the sacrifice. And when God sees Abraham's faith as he nearly goes through with it, Mm -hmm. the angel of the Lord stops him and the Lord prepares or provides a ram in the bush for sacrifice instead. But the reason I would go to that passage is because Abraham is commended for his faith in God to keep his promises. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: How could he have believed that God would keep his promise if God asked him to sacrifice the one son that he had given him Mm -hmm. to raise up a nation? the answer is because Abraham was willing to trust the Lord and I think Abraham was expecting a resurrection of his son at this time. paired with this truth is just the fact that God will keep every promise he's ever made there's not a single promise he's made that will not be completed our God is faithful Abraham, Isaac and Jacob lived more than 500 years prior to Moses And yet in Exodus 3, God tells Moses he will use him in order to fulfill the promise he made that much earlier. This means that every promise made to us that has not yet been completely fulfilled will either be in this life or in eternity. And we can have confidence in that because of the way that God has already been faithful to keep his promises. As we see he has done to the patriarchs, as we see he has done in his son Jesus It is the power of God that raises us up. Second thing about the resurrection. The resurrection will be physical, not just spiritual. That's important to say because uh, in today's culture, in today's world, people often separate the idea of of a soul and a body. Uh, So there are some, uh, again, liberal theologians today believe that Christ didn't even bodily raise from the dead. Only spiritually, and therefore we will only spiritually rise from the dead. You need to ignore a lot of scripture to come to that kind of viewpoint. So they are like the Sadducees, in that they have a canon within a canon. They only recognize some scripture as authoritative and not others. But how can we demonstrate it will be bodily? Well, There's a few different examples I can give, but another one comes from the end of Joseph's life. In the last chapter of Genesis, Joseph is on his deathbed. And he's speaking to his sons. And he tells them that the Lord will visit them and take them to the promised land. And when he does, he makes his sons promise him that they will carry his bones from Egypt to Canaan with them. Fast forward to the end of the book of Joshua after they take the land. And there's a special remark made in Joshua 24:33, And you can read about the land that was purchased and designated for the burial of Joseph's Bones that they carried up from Egypt. If resurrection were only spiritual, why would Joseph and other kings throughout the Old Testament be concerned about where their bones were laid? The reason is because Joseph believed in a resurrection, a physical one, and he wanted his bones to be in the promised land where he believed the Lord would dwell with his people. We also have a picture of what our res- resurrection will be like because of Jesus himself, of course, who is called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in First Corinthians. Jesus, whose resurrected body bore the holes in his hands from the nails in his crucifixion. Thomas felt the physical body of Jesus before he ascended to heaven. So I can predict your, your thinking already about, what about people who are cremated, who have the kinds of death that would make resurrection unpleasant or seemingly uh, really difficult? Uh, I would just say, the God who creates and raises the dead can certainly mend our bodies and change their substance. Jesus likely retained the holes in his hands to prove himself to his disciples who couldn't believe their eyes at first. If he can put flesh on dry bones, certainly he can raise those who have the kinds of deaths where their bodies are discarded. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52 and following, third thing about the resurrection. It is not just the godly or the regenerated or those who are saved, Christians, that will be raised, but all humanity will be raised. A resurrection will occur for every person and then there will be a judgment. Uh, this is clear from passages like Daniel 12 too, which says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life. And some to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus confirms this in John 5, 28 through 29. He says, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That same passage speaks about how the Father has given Jesus the authority to execute judgment which is what we see in the end of the Bible the book of Revelation. This this doctrine of resurrection and other essential doctrines is one of the reasons we have as a church a statement of faith. Uh, We believe that uh, those things articulated in our statement of faith are the most important things for us to believe, uh, which you can find on our website, by the way. Uh, I commended it this morning during the Sunday school class. Uh, because we'll have little footnotes that have all of the scripture verses that we are giving the doctrines from. be useful to look over. The last article on our statement of faith is concerning the world to come. It summarizes the resurrection incredibly well. It says, we believe that the end of the world is approaching. That on the last day Christ will descend from heaven and raise the dead from the grave to final retribution. That a solemn separation will then take place that the wicked will be adjudged to endless punishment, and the righteous to endless joy, and this judgment will fix forever the final state of men in heaven or hell on principles of righteousness. So to deny the resurrection of the ungodly to judgment is simply to say that those who are not saved simply cease to exist at death. This is just another form of annihilationism. They are gone forever. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead. Mm -hmm. Those who shy away from ideas of heaven and hell through eternity, at least hell especially, they want to believe in some kind of annihilationism. That's basically what the Sadducees believe. There is no resurrection. Death happens and that's it. But that is not justice. And I would argue that it's no comfort to think that evildoers of the world are not held accountable for their sins. All will physically be raised in order to be judged. Those who have turned from their sins and trust in Christ will be covered by the blood of the Lamb and enter into eternal life, eternal blessedness. while others will enter into eternal destruction, condemned to hell. Dear friend, if you are here and you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, I know that some of these things, Ideas of hell and judgment are uncomfortable and unpleasant to talk about. But I think you would agree with me that if we saw a tragedy about to happen, someone running into a street and a car coming, it would not be loving to not tell them what was coming. It would be loving to warn them of the danger. So friend, in love, let me just warn you that the resurrection will not be pleasant if you do not trust in Jesus. The resurrection will be a reckoning. So if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, consider doing that today. Uh, He gives you the promise that your sins will be forgiven because of his work on the cross. He says our sins were nailed to him on the cross. He showed victory over death in his resurrection and calls all to repent of their sins and trust in him. If you have any questions about what that might look like for you, uh, or just questions in general, feel free to talk to me afterwards. I would love to talk to you about that. Or speak to another member that uh, you might have come with. Up to this point, I've showed you three critical errors of the Sadducees and tried to provide helpful application for us to avoid those errors. I've given you an overview of the doctrine of resurrection. Thank you for your patience with me on that. Uh, But there's one other big mistake made by the Sadducees I want to point out in this text. That mistake is the assumption that heaven, or the life after this one, is pretty much going to be the same as our experience on earth now. And while there are some similarities, a physical body, a world to live in, there will be a physical new heavens and new earth as well. There are some differences and those differences are crucial. One of them is marriage itself. They assume it continues. When in reality, Jesus says there will be no marriage. Uh, this is one of the reasons he says we'll be like angels, because we'll have eternal bodies, we'll live forever. Think about what marriage was designed for, procreation. But if we don't die, there's no reason to bring up heirs. There's no need to procreate in heaven. And therefore, there's no need for marriage. Not only that, but the thing that marriage represents will be experienced in full. If you've not heard that before, you might be taken back a little bit. Um, perhaps even saddened to hear it. I confess, at first, a part of me felt that way as well. I love my wife dearly. We have a wonderful marriage. The thought of not being married at first doesn't feel right. But if that's the case, it's only because we have a very small view of heaven. Heaven is described as a place of endless joy, a place where there are no tears or pain or sickness or death. It's a place where our joy is made complete, completely satisfied. Heaven is a place of unimaginable beauty and joy, such that the things that we enjoy in this life pale in comparison to. C.S. Lewis had a good image for this. He said, if you ask a four-year-old boy what the what the greatest thing in the world is, he might say, this chocolate bar. Because to his experience in the world, it was the sweetest thing he'd ever tasted. Wow. He enjoyed it. and He could not think of anything more enjoyable than to eat a chocolate bar. Friends, you and I know there are much greater joys than that in life. And just like that little boy didn't have the categories to understand or experience what something... Uh, like a roller coaster, uh, or or a healthy marriage, or any of the other wonderful things in life, the same will be true of us when we get to heaven. We have ideas because of the gifts that God has given us in life, but they pale in comparison to the true joys that await. Jonathan Edwards said it this way, In heaven, the glorified spiritual bodies of the saints shall be filled with pleasures of the most exquisite kind, that such refined bodies are capable of. The sweetness and pleasure that shall be in the mind shall put the spirits of the body into such emotion as shall cause a sweet sensation throughout the body. Infinitely excelling any sensual pleasure here. This means that even while something as good as marriage does not exist in heaven, we won't be sad about it. We won't desire it. We won't feel like we're missing out because we will have something much better we will enjoy the thing that marriage on earth points to we will live out the perfect marriage between Christ and his bride the church marriage is just a shadow of the true union between God and his people it's a way to demonstrate the love and the commitment between the two parties in heaven we will not prefer to have the shadow over the real thing Marriage is not taken away in the resurrection, it's completed. It gives way to the real thing. Brothers and sisters, don't mistake the shadow for the object that casts it. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: If I never saw my dear wife, or heard her voice, or held her hand, I think I'd look at her shadow fondly. But I would never in a million years trade her real presence for her shadow. Nor would I feel like I was missing something. Heaven is the same way. The joys we experience on earth are just a foretaste of what is to come. They're appetizers that prepare us for the main course. When we get to heaven, we won't miss the shadows of this world. So, brothers and sisters, we can be confident in life after death because God is God of the living and not of the dead. Therefore, fix your gaze. To heaven. And live in a way that is consistent. With our eternal hope. Mm -hmm. Let's pray. Heavenly Father we give you praise. Because you are the God of life. We give you praise because. You revealed yourself to us. In scripture. You are the God who keeps. Your promises. We live in one world in which we experience an already not yet. We have the promises, the affirmation and assurance that comes through Christ's death and resurrection, but we long for the day in which we join your very presence in the new heavens and the new earth. We pray that we would rely on your power, who conquered the grave. Help us to set our eyes where Christ is seated at your right hand. We pray these things in the name of your precious Son. Amen.